to Brain Science, a podcast where we explore how recent discoveries in neuroscience are helping to unravel the mystery of how our brains make us human. I'm your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell, and this is episode 155. Today, I'm excited to be interviewing a fellow podcaster, Paul Middlebrooks, from the Brain-Inspired Podcast. I discovered Paul's work thanks to a longtime listener, and the reason I wanted to have him on the show is that his podcast covers a topic that I think many of you will find interesting. It's the intersection between artificial intelligence and neuroscience. Before I get into the interview, I want to remind you that you can find complete show notes and episode transcripts on my website at brainsciencepodcast.com. You can send me feedback at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com or submit voice feedback at speakpipe.com forward slash docartemis or use the SpeakPipe app on your mobile device. Middlebrooks, it's great to have you on Brain Science today. I am delighted to be here with the legendary Dr. Ginger Campbell. Thanks for having me, Ginger. Well, Paul, I have to tell you that one of my listeners told me about your show, and I'm really glad that he did. Paul's show is called Brain Inspired, and we're going to be talking about that in a few minutes. We're going to be exploring the interaction and intersection between artificial intelligence and neuroscience. But I want to start out by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself, Mm -hmm. how you got interested in neuroscience, what you studied, and why your career took such an unusual turn. (laughs) Right. Why am I retired? Yeah. So how did I get into neuroscience? I guess it was really through philosophy, I suppose. So I was one of those kids in high school who who got into existentialism, right? Jean-Paul Sartre and that whole group, right? And that kind of stayed with me into college. But I, I went to college for aerospace engineering and I did that for a while. And then I got into molecular biology. It happened that there was no neuroscience department at the college that I went to. So I couldn't have majored in it had I wanted to. But while I was in college, there was this great half-price books <laughs> near where I lived, and I bought the book Neurophilosophy by Patricia Churchland, whom you've had on your show twice now, I believe. And that really kind of drew me in to the neuroscience aspect and joining the philosophical aspect with the neuroscience aspect. And then I kind of went down the rabbit hole, and that led me to the book The Computational Brain, uh, which was co-authored by Patricia Churchland and Terry Sanofsky. So I spent too much time in college reading that stuff and not particularly attending courses, making other questionable, unproductive decisions, you might say. So I didn't really start working in neuroscience until much later, a little bit before graduate school. Well, I think, you know, there was a time when most people didn't start out in neuroscience. Undergraduate programs in neuroscience are relatively new. That's true. Yeah. People I have on my show often remind me how how new the field of neuroscience is in general. It's just still very new, it turns out. So anyway, I barely graduated (laughs) college, but I was really interested in these questions. I really loved consciousness, of course, and I still do, and awareness, and wanted to know how do we get mind from the brain. But my grades were so poor in undergraduate that I knew I'd have to work for a while. So I got really lucky. I got hired into a molecular biology lab, worked there for a few years, ended up transitioning to a a neuroscience lab where we studied neuroplasticity in developing mouse visual cortex. So a given day there, uh, I would show up to the lab. I would go grab a mouse from the facility, a developing mouse, and anesthetize it. And I would have to extract its brain and slice its brain put the visual cortex, which I sliced out into a solution for a while, and end up putting it on a little area where I could wash drugs over it and stimulate it to see how the neurons in the visual cortex responded to the stimulation under these drugs. So I did that for a few years and then finally got into graduate school with a lot of help and luck. Just to give you a background of what I was doing, you know, how I got to where I am now, So I entered graduate school still with a lot of naivete and really wanted to ask the highest cognitive question that I could and get as as close as I could to 
studying self-awareness, but in an animal model. So I ended up working in a rhesus macaque lab, a monkey lab, studying visual decision-making. My thesis was on metacognition in monkeys. I'm not sure if your listeners will be familiar with metacognition. Why don't you go ahead and define it just in case? (laughs) Right. So metacognition is loosely defined as thinking about thinking or cognition about cognition. So thinking about your own thoughts, keeping track of your decisions, for instance, and then making decisions based on those thoughts. So in a monkey, the usually when we think of metacognition, we think of the human idea of thinking about our thoughts. But in a monkey, your metacognition would be defined as being able to keep track of what you've thought in the past so you can make new decisions? Well, we can't ask them what they're thinking, right? <laughs> so, Right. Is that how we're defining it as best we can? Well, I had to develop a task to test whether monkeys could show behavior that we would consider metacognitive behavior. So I actually had gone down the rabbit hole here and looked into the human research and found, I actually ended up finding some tasks that behaviorally people had done with monkeys that showed that there was some evidence that they could keep track of their decisions and then make responses by touching screens based on those decisions. And and I can tell you about the task that I ended up developing and training the monkeys to perform. Basically, I I taught them to bet. (laughs) So this is the naivete of, you know, even throughout uh, graduate school, I always had on my posters this picture of gambling monkeys, which always drew a lot of attention. So... So that worked out well. The task went like this. So a monkey would sit in a chair in a dark room and look at a a video screen, and they would play a little video game with their eyes. Their heads would be fixed still, and they'd be looking at the video screen, and a little dot would come up in the middle of the screen, and the monkey would fixate on that dot to start a trial. A little bit later, a flash of light would occur in the periphery, really brief flash of light, and then four big flashes of light would cover that one flash of light. And the monkey's job here was to make a decision where it thought the flash of light happened in the periphery. So the monkey would move its eyes to one of the locations, one of those four locations, and then it would move its eyes back to the fixation spot in the center. And that was the decision stage of the task. Then everything went off the screen, and then two bet targets came up on the screen, a high bet target and a low bet target. And the monkey's job here was to bet whether it thinks it got the decision right or wrong. At the end of the trial, it would get rewarded based on whether its bet was correct relative to its decision. Does that make sense? I don't think I understand what the definition of right or wrong would be here. Well, so in the first stage, the decision stage, the monkey could move its eyes to a location that the original target appeared So the target appears in one of those four locations. Or the monkey can move its eyes to one of the other locations. If it didn't see where that original target appeared, it might guess and go to a different location because it has to go to some location. So that completes the decision aspect of the trial, and then it has to bet whether it got it right or wrong. And if the monkey guessed, if it's keeping track of its own decisions, if you're a human, you would bet low, like you didn't really have confidence that you were correct before. If that's true, if it made a wrong, incorrect decision and then bet low, it's still got a little bit of juice, right, to reward it for making the correct bet in that case. Of course, the highest amount of reward it would get is if it made a correct decision and then bet high as if it were really confident that it made the correct decision. Okay, so the part I don't understand is how do you know that betting high meant that it thought it was confident? Well, We can only look at the behavior. So, you know, we had a bunch of controls. But it turned out that the monkeys, on average, when they made the correct decision, they would bet high. So they were maximizing their reward in that respect, which, you know, is how you train them to do the task. And this is really hard to train in monkeys. I had kind of one challenged monkey and one really bright monkey. Even in the bright monkey, it took two and a half, three months uh, until you kind of started to see it click while it's doing this video game, it would get the decision right and then bet high. It would get the decision wrong or guess and bet low. So it was pretty interesting to watch. So then what happened? So that was my PhD work in graduate school. And I have to say, I was, I mean, I've gotten lucky a lot in my little academic career. So I had an advisor, Mark Summer, there who was really supportive of my crazy idea to try to train monkeys to bet to do this metacognition task. Really supportive and 
probably a little naive himself, you know, <laughs> who knows. But it was really lucky on my part to be in his lab. So I got my PhD doing that work. Uh, and, I, you know, I went on and I did some postdoctoral work for a few years doing the same kind of stuff, decision-making in visual decision-making studying. Oh, and I, I'm sorry, I should say, I didn't even talk about the neuroscience part of my graduate work. So I recorded single neurons in brain areas while the monkeys were doing this metacognition task. The neurons would predict how the monkey would bet based on their decision way before the monkey would bet. That was probably the most interesting part. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, you know, people stop me when I say I trained monkeys to bet. And so there's always a... And then they have to ask me more questions about that. But yeah, so every day I would... The monkey would be in the lab and I'd be lowering an electrode, a single electrode, listening for neurons because you have the electrical signal of the neuron coming through the, the metal electrode in the monkey's brain and then piping out of an auditory speaker. I'm in the other room. So the monkey would be doing a task on the screen, moving its eyes, and I'd be lowering it into various brain regions, one of which was is called the frontal eye field, which is responsible for, among other things, making eye movements in these decision-like tasks. So, you know, I'd be in the other room lowering this electrode and just hearing the neurons as I could kind of pass by them. So I'd be creeping up on a neuron and I could hear it popping, pop, 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 pop. And then if it was a really good neuron, for instance, there are these neurons in the frontal eye field of monkeys that they're called presychotic neurons. They will ramp up their activity right before a monkey moves its eyes. You'll hear it just ramp up. It'll go, and then the monkey will move its eyes really quickly. And seeing that in the lab, it's an amazing thing. You know, just listening to one single neuron ramp up its activity right before an eye movement. So I recorded neurons in the frontal eye field, and I recorded neurons in two other areas, a little bit more dorsal in the prefrontal cortex, and then like in a midline region called the supplementary eye field. And these were all areas where we knew that um, we could get activity related to eye movements. The take-home was that it ended up that supplementary eye field was the winner of the three areas and that it had neurons that would track whether the monkey would bet high or low based on its decision. So it was really fun work to do. So that was the most interesting part. How could I have skipped that? <laughs> <laughs> the pressure of being on the other side of the microphone. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> well, I have my notes here, right? So that's it. <laughs> And that wasn't even in my notes. That's why I skipped it. <laughs> so after I got my PhD, I went and did some similar kind of research as a postdoc at Vanderbilt University and spent almost six years doing that, I suppose. And then my wife said she'd divorce me if I stayed in academia. No, that didn't happen. <laughs> but, but when I was a postdoc, we had a couple kids, my wife and I, and it got to the point where I needed to start thinking about applying for jobs, either becoming faculty or moving on to another postdoc, as you do in this sort of neuroscience research field that I'm in. So Catherine, my wife and I, had what we call a life summit one evening. We got these big pieces of paper out and kind of sketched out what our ideal lives would look like, you know, and it was almost like a five-year plan sort of thing. You know, I had to think about whether I was committed enough to become faculty somewhere and run my own lab, which means writing grants all the time, publishing papers all the time or perishing, continuously sweating until I received tenure, or was there another way around that could fulfill my desire to continuously learn this kind of stuff? Because it's fascinating stuff to me while still being free and spending time and enjoying my family. These were like hard decisions because I had worked really hard to get to where I was, and I'd had a lot of luck along the way, but I, I'd even overcome some of my own failings, you know? So, but Catherine and I both had this gnawing sense of wanting to be free <laughs> to work wherever and whenever we wanted, which is, had not happened yet, but <laughs> we also thought that this was a possible way forward, especially in this day and age of the internet where you, you could do that roam about and earn income. So did you decide not to pursue a faculty position? <laughs> yeah, so I decided that, well, we decided, I suppose, that uh, I would quit the academic world. And what do you do when you quit the ac academic world? Well, of course, you sell your house, all your stuff, uh, move you and your kids into an RV, 
and uh, travel around the country with no money and focus on building online businesses to try to support yourself. (laughs) So that's what we did. And we spent a little bit over a year doing that. And what we focused on for income, my lovely wife is an excellent yoga instructor. So we decided to build a business around her skills as a yoga teacher. And we worked like mad for you know, more than a year just to give a little bit of life to that business. And little by little, she has taken over almost the entire operation of that business. Now, I know your audience feels the way I feel. I love podcasts. When I run, I listen to podcasts. Sometimes when I walk from the kitchen to the other room, I listen to podcasts, you know. So I I know I'm preaching to the choir here with your audience. There are so many great science podcasts like yours. And, And in fact, Brain science is in this like really sweet spot, I think, for podcasts. So there are lots of great popular science podcasts. They get a little too fluffy for me, actually. And it's really hard to enjoy them. And I know that they're trying to find the largest possible audience. You know, you can't fault them for being really on the entertainment side of the education entertainment scale. So I had worked in neuroscience and I had gotten interested in artificial intelligence and I had this idea for a podcast in the back of my mind for a long time. I felt like there was so much potential between neuroscience and AI, and not that I'm the first to think that, but I really wanted to explore that interface and the space between them and fully understand that range of potential myself. So this is kind of how I decided to start the Brain Inspired podcast. Well, that was a long story. Not really. It it felt long because you were the one telling it, but it actually really wasn't that long. And I think many listeners will identify with various parts of your story, so I really appreciate you sharing it. Hope so. So basically that's the origin story for Brain Inspired. I'm really excited about this month's new sponsor, Text Expander, from the folks at Smile Software. If you use a Mac and you ever find yourself typing the same thing over and over, Text Expander is the program for you. It's much more efficient than copy and paste. All you do is create a snippet and then you can share it across all your devices. It works inside of other programs like Word and Mail, so you can create everything from form letters to signatures. I've been using it for years, so I can guarantee you that it's easy to learn and the Smile website has plenty of tutorials. Just visit textexpander.com forward slash podcast to learn more. Be sure to tell them that you heard about Text Expander on Brain Science, and if you decide to sign up, you'll get 20% off your first year. So let's talk a little bit about this whole AI and neuroscience thing. Let's start out with, well, how do they inform each other or fail to inform each other? Do you want to start with just maybe giving us a primer of some of the important terms and principles that we need to be able to even talk about artificial intelligence? All right. Well, that would take a week, I suppose. But If somebody's coming to your show, what kind of terms do you sort of assume they already understand? It's a changing assumption, right? Because in the early days of the show, I would define all the terms and I've, I've found myself leaving that a lot of it to the audience, assuming that they're, they're coming in with some of this knowledge. A lot of what we talk about on the show is deep learning, likely because there has been this recent just explosion in deep learning in all sorts of you know industry and in neuroscience. So a lot of my guests on the show, and we explore other topics as well, but a lot of the guests on the show are exploring the, the relationship between deep learning and, and neuroscience and what they can gain from each other, essentially. So this is a heavy topic on the show. I could give you sort of a a deep learning background in the story of how that came to be, if you'd like. That would be a good place to start. If we get a basic concept of deep learning, and then maybe we could talk about where deep learning fits into the bigger picture. Beautiful. Okay. So this is going to be a a very abridged version of the sort of the history of deep learning and, and just what it is, what it means. But There's a really good book that I recommend to your listeners, and I interviewed Terry Sandowski, who wrote this book called The Deep Learning Revolution, and it really lays out the story of how we got to this point in deep learning. 
from its foundations. And Terry knows this stuff because he was involved in like so many steps along the way. And so many people involved in it were either from his lab or he collaborated with them. So, and it really lays this story out well. So I just wanted to recommend that book to your listeners. Yeah, that's on my I wish I had time to read it list. I haven't gotten around to. Yeah. Well, it's well written and Terry's a good teacher too. So anyway, I'll send you a copy and make and uh, guilt you into reading it. Okay. And I'll put links to it in my show notes for sure. Great. So just to set the context and give a little bit of background before really dive into deep learning, in 1956, the term artificial intelligence, rather, was coined by John McCarthy during this summer conference at Dartmouth College. And this would become the famous conference called the Dartmouth College Summer AI Conference. And this was after uh, Walter Pitts and Warren McCulloch developed what came to be known as a McCulloch-Pitts neuron, which basically is the precursor to the artificial neuron units that are used in deep learning networks these days. It was also after Alan Turing set the stage for computers as we know them and machine learning as we know it. But at this time, when this conference happened, most engineering and computer-based solutions to solving intelligence problems were based on logical steps and manipulating symbols that humans would manually build into the systems. Now, really where I want to start is with what's called the perceptron. And I want to start here because basically perceptron is deep learning without the deep part. So if we understand a perceptron, well, it's, it's really easy to understand the deep part of the learning. Um, you could call it shallow learning, I suppose. Everything that's not deep learning is shallow learning. Okay, so Frank Rosenblatt invented the perceptron in 1957. And basically, this is right when you were being conceived, right, Ginger? No, I was born in 1955. 55. So you were maybe almost on the swing sets by this point. (laughs) (laughs) Not that precocious. (laughs) Anyway, Frank wrote a book a couple years later about his work on perceptrons. And the book is called Principles of Neurodynamics, Perceptrons and the Theory of Brain Mechanisms. I actually looked this up because I had never looked at this book before. But to illustrate that brain science and artificial intelligence have really been together since the beginning, this is a quote from his book here in the very, in the preface, actually. A perceptron is first and foremost a brain model, not an invention for pattern recognition. As a brain model, its utility is enabling us to determine the physical conditions for the emergence of various psychological properties. So the press had reported that Frank had made this thing that would soon be conscious of itself. It would be walking around. It would be ordering pizzas or, or whatever. So this is in 19, you know, the ni- late 1950s, early 1960s. So he'd suffered these like criticisms of all sorts like this, you know, for his work. You know, does this sound familiar? This almost doomsday scenario of all these robots running around doing things? Yeah, it makes me wonder when the book I, Robot was actually written, because I'm not sure. That's the Asimov book? Yeah. You know, I never read Asimov, so I don't know. That's a good question. So Frank had to kind of stress, like, come on, like, I, I know this is not a brain or even close to an accurate model of how brains work, but, you know, we've got to start somewhere. So his real vision was to figure out how brains work. And this is the same with a lot of these early AI pioneers. So they have. They've had this relationship since the beginning, and and neuroscience and brain science and artificial intelligence have broken up a few times over the years. But (laughs) right now, they're back on, and the relationship seems pretty strong right now, although some people think, you know, there's a new breakup coming around the corner that maybe we're at our limits with deep learning. But that's for another time, I suppose. So perceptrons, how they work here. So a perceptron's job is basically to categorize whether some input that you give it does or doesn't belong to a class of objects, like a cat. So you give it a picture of either a cat or not a cat, and it says that's a cat or not a cat, and that's its job. The way that it is formed, it is made up of an input layer, which is made up of these little units, and you feed into those units a picture in the form of numbers, like pixel values, like on your computer screen is made up of pixels, right? And each of those pixels has a value for how bright it is, for instance. 
So you'd feed those numbers into this input layer. And you can kind of think of this as the retina. Light coming into your eyeball hits the retina, and that's the first contact it has really with your brain. So those input units, they all connect to and converge on a single artificial neuron. So, and all these connections are weighted, which means that only some portion of the signal that the input unit is sending to the artificial neuron actually gets passed to the artificial neuron. And that's based on how much it's weighted. Now, the artificial neuron's job then is just to sum up all of those weighted inputs from all those input units. It sums those up and then passes that value that it sums up to this simple thresholder, and we're almost at the end here, which was the output. The thresholder took that summed signal and just asked whether it was above or below a certain set threshold. And then it would output, one, it's a cat, or zero, no, not a cat, depending on that threshold. So then you have your output. Now, if it's right, nothing happens to the all the units and the weights between them in the perceptron. But if it gets the wrong answer, if it was a cat but it said it was not a cat, then the weights could be adjusted, the weights between the input and the artificial neuron could be adjusted by a small amount based on an equation that we don't need to get into. <laughs> yeah, so no equations in podcasts, I think, right? <laughs> Good rule. Yeah, it's a good rule. So the, the novelty here with the perceptron relative to these earlier systems that were symbol manipulators and logic gates was that this thing took in just patterns of data. It didn't take in symbols, just values of the pixels, for instance. And also the way it learned was it would adjust the weights of the input units to the artificial neuron automatically using this equation. Whereas in the old days, people would see the output and then they, could, they would adjust weights by hand, turning knobs and things like that. So it was really laborious. So this is the beginnings of automatic learning in an artificial system. All right, so we, we have the perceptron. Are we on board? Yeah, I can see why this is a really big step. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, it turns out really soon after the perceptron was invented was the first breakup between <laughs> uh, AI and, and neuroscience, basically. And the first AI winter, I suppose you'd say, because these two famous scientists, Marvin Minsky and, and Seymour Papert, famous artificial intelligence scientists, among other things, wrote this scathing manuscript criticizing the perceptron and its limits of what it could do, right? And this set off the first AI winter, okay? And then, like I said, there have been a couple more AI winters, and neuroscience and AI have, have been together and apart. But now we can fast forward to deep learning. So we're going to skip all the winters. So deep learning is like a perceptron on steroids with lots of other bells and whistles, basically. Deep learning is possible because of the advent of more computational power with computers, big data which is really new. So it's just so many training examples available to train these networks, millions and millions of examples that you can train these networks on. And also the inventions and the innovations of clever ways to help the networks learn over time. So going from the perceptron, here's how deep learning, and I, and I should say deep learning these days kind of stands for anything that's a big neural network. I'll give kind of the basics of how they're kind of laid out. And then from there, everyone can explore all the bells and whistles, okay? So does the definition of deep learning have embedded in it something about many layers? It does in the sense that, so it used to be really difficult to train networks with either one input layer and then a, a, one layer after that and then an output layer. But, you know, as the computational power of computers and as the learning algorithms have become better, it's become more and more possible to add more and more layers. So, so that is kind of what deep means. However, it encompasses a wide variety of types of neural networks as well these days. But yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. And I'll just kind of tell you how they're, how they're kind of laid out. And then, you know, we can go from there. So again, in a deep network, there's an input layer, just like with a perceptron. But this time, you feed in an image with, for example, hundreds of thousands of pixels, right? These big images. And then for the output, you don't have a single output unit. You have an output layer. I mean, it can converge on a single unit to say yes or no. But basically, you have this really big output layer 
And each of these units is saying, oh, well, there's a 33% chance that it's a cat, or there's a 12% chance it's a hot air balloon, and so on and so on. In between the input and the output are all what's called the hidden layers, and this is where the depth comes in. You remember the perceptron just had this single artificial neuron, and various later versions had multiple neurons and things like that. But now we have layers and layers and layers of units and connections between all of them. So a given unit in one layer is connected to all of the units in the next layer. And all of these connections are weighted connections, and these are also called the parameters. So that's another jargony term that I have to throw out there because you know when you train a model, what you're doing is learning the parameters over time. So these parameters or the weights get adjusted and learned over training. So you can imagine a deep neural network, and, and there, this is kind of a common thing now, where all the connections between all the units, it gives rise to millions of parameters to learn. So one of the clever tricks to train the network for the parameters to adjust and learn well, and this is the last jargony term I'll talk about, and then I'll, I'll back off, is backpropagation. So this has been kind of a breakthrough training algorithm. Backpropagation, it's a neat and direct way to figure out automatically how to adjust the weights to get closer to the right answer. So you can imagine putting in a picture of a cat, and then you can think about the units processing it one layer at a time, and then there's an output, right? And that's either a cat or it's not a cat. And like I said, it can the network can think, oh, that's 33%, I think that's a cat. So if it's a cat, then what happens with backpropagation is that it will send the error, if it's only 33%, considered a cat, it's probably going to say, this is not a cat. And let's say we put in a picture of a cat. So it sends the error signal backwards through the network, layer by layer, and adjusts each and every one of those weights or parameters a tiny amount closer to the correct answer. So this solves like an important problem in learning in these things. It can automatically, through sending the error back through all the units, it can determine which unit was most responsible for the error of not considering it a cat and adjust those weights more, for instance, than the other units. So you do this over thousands and thousands of images, and it trains the network to tell you when, when you put a cat <laughs> in as an image. I think that that kind of covers what deep learning is in a very, very basic way. And I'm sure deep learning ex experts are jumping out of their seats right now, but... Well, that's okay. Do you think that since we've been talking about deep learning, is it like a big departure from the rest of artificial intelligence or does it just represent like the next evolutionary layer? How representative is it of, of the larger field? Well, it's definitely a subset of the fields. So it's not at the head of the arrow of artificial intelligence research. There are lots of different things like neuromorphics. These are artificial chips that are designed to behave and emulate neurons in brains really well. And we can get into some of the differences between deep learning and brains. But deep learning networks, although there has been some crosstalk between them, aren't specifically designed to mimic the brain, for instance. So it is one subset. It's just been a ridiculously successful subset recently that a lot of really smart people are focusing on. So that's another way that it really is developing pretty quickly. So what's the driving principle of AI as a field? And I know that's kind of a vague question, but... Well, do you mean like the goal of AI or like the... Yeah, yeah. Well... You know, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm... I can take a stab at that, so... Well, right. Your sense of what it is, because I'm sure every scientist that works in the field has their own... Yeah. Well, so I think that the idea that we can make machines with intelligence capabilities to do things as well as and or better than we do, I feel like that's broad enough because there are sort of, you know, there are two goals, right? Because there's the goal of just making things do things well. And that's an engineering goal. That's just solving problems of how to, well, how to determine whether an image is a cat, for instance. Then there's the goal of doing it, that phrase, like doing it as well as humans do or better than we do. Well, it's hard to know how well we do things. And it depends on what that particular thing is because, 
language isn't one thing, right? And so, and visual processing isn't one thing. So it gets a little fuzzier there. I think I'm a little safe by saying it's making machines with intelligent capabilities as well as ours or, or better than ours. The reason I'm asking that question is because it leads into the comparison between the goals of AI and the goals of neuroscience, because I think they're really different. Yeah, yeah. So the goals of AI are really kind of a, in the problem-solving direction, right? Well, that's one aspect, because another goal of AI, I mean, think back to that perceptron and what Frank Rosenblatt wrote. This was his attempt to start studying information flow in the brain and how the brain actually uh, accomplished things. So he was directly trying to study brain processes there. So that's another, uh, I don't think you can divorce AI from that completely. But if you take somebody like Minsky, didn't he just eviscerate him over that? I mean, like, that's not what we're about? Over whether we're trying to study brains? Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know. Minsky himself was really interested in cognition. You know, he's a cognitive scientist as well and had a lot of early influential ideas. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. That's a good question. That's fair, because I don't know too much about it either. Well, Ginger, what would you say the goal of neuroscience is? To figure out how the brain really works. Uh, yeah, okay. So, well, I think yours is safer than mine, probably. So I, I think it's to figure out how brains implement, you know, all of our experiences and thoughts and actions and, and bodily and interoceptive processes. And in short, that means figure out how the brain works. <laughs> it really works. Yeah. So I like your, your definition better, I suppose. I'm going to break into the interview here to remind you that your support is vital to the ongoing success of brain science. There are three ways to support the show financially. The premium subscription is most popular with newer listeners because it gives you unlimited access to the back catalog and all episode transcripts. That's over 100 episodes going back to 2006. Patreon is popular with longtime listeners because it gives you control over how much you donate every month. If you give at least $3 a month, you get new episode transcripts every month. If you give $10 or more, you get ad-free content as well as other perks. For example, this episode has about 10 minutes of extra content after the closing credits. That is in the ad-free $10 version. If you are a current Patreon supporter, don't forget to sign into your account and make sure that you're in the correct tier. Finally, if you want to make a one-time donation, you can do that using PayPal or even send me an old-fashioned check. I know all these choices get confusing, so all you have to do if you want to learn more is go to brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash donations, and you'll find links to all the choices there, as well as more details. If you can't afford to support the show financially, you can still help by sharing it with others. And don't forget that if you will send me a screenshot of your iTunes review, I'll send you a $10 Amazon gift card. Well, I get a lot of emails from people who think that neuroscience will replace psychology. I think they're looking at different levels Psychology is traditionally about the mind, but it's a whole person field. And I think it's important that psychology be brain-based and not pseudoscience. But I also think that when you decide you're going to look at a whole person, that's a whole different thing from what's generally a reductionist approach in neuroscience. And I think there's a, a place for both approaches and that they should hopefully be complementary, which is kind of what we're talking about here with AI and neuroscience, don't you think? Yeah, I really think so. And it's interesting you say that about psychology as well, because in my naivete, even in graduate school, I considered psychology subsumed within neuroscience, right? And cognitive science subsumed. So this question of levels is really interesting. And, you know, I've had some interesting conversations on my show what level do we understand certain processes and, and can you reduce certain psychological processes and behaviors to 
what's happening at the neuronal and the circuit level in the brain. And it's an open question. So I think there's a lot of work to do to figure out the answer, I suppose. I'll give you an example about why I don't think the answer is that they can be all reduced to the neuronal level. Take drug addiction. You can understand what's happening with the hijacking of the dopamine circuits. But that doesn't tell you anything about why somebody relapses when they get triggered by a social situation. I mean, you might be able to figure out what exactly is happening in their brain, but it doesn't give you any practical information about how to help them. In order to help them, you have to be able to consider the larger context, the fact that maybe they need to intentionally avoid things they know are going to cause triggers. Right. (laughs) And be able to predict what might cause those triggers and the underlying neural activity that would be set off, you know, when those triggers happened. And yeah, there's, it's very complicated. That's the thing, you know, it's complicated. Neither one of us is going to run out of material for our shows. I love it. I love it though. (laughs) That's a great thing. So brain science and neuroscience and artificial intelligence, to go back to your question, I suppose, you know, how do those goals differ? So that's why I asked you about the goal of, of neuroscience, right? And so we're on the same page about that. It turns out, you know, artificial intelligence doesn't, in principle, you know, I suppose, care about the brain because there is this facet of machine learning and AI that of just creating solutions to problems, however they can be created in the artificial intelligence system. And there are lots of ways to implement intelligence in non-human-like ways. But there is that sub-goal, I would say, of artificial intelligence or, or sub-domain, and I don't even know if it's you'd say it's a sub-domain, but just a different domain, that seeks to understand the brain and how we think and what underlies how we learn and where our incredibly diverse and efficient abilities come from. We talk a lot about, about this sort of stuff on the show. So this stuff is exciting to me. (laughs) So it's good. Just to sort of bring us down to a little bit more concrete level for a few minutes, do you have an example that you could share from either your experience or from your many guests of neuroscience informing artificial intelligence? Yeah, actually, I think one of the more powerful marriages between deep learning and neuroscience recently. So I had Dan Yamans on the show and his group and um, other groups too, and I've had a few of them on the show, they've set up these deep neural networks. Okay, let me back up. So our visual processing system proceeds hierarchically. In the very back of the brain and early visual cortex, you know, you have these neurons that respond to edges and different orientations of light. And then it passes along to higher and higher areas. And as it passes the information along, the neural signals along, you can record neurons that will respond to more and more abstract features of something until you get up to in V4 or what's called IT or V4. There's the Ginger Campbell neuron, right? If you see a picture of you. And the idea is that all of these features have built and come together over time and then come together in this very higher level to code for the entire object. So that's object recognition in the brain. And what Dan did and what others have done was to set up a deep learning network with layers that sort of mimic the hierarchical layers in the brain, in visual cortex. And they would pass in images into that network and train it. And then they could analyze the units much like you would analyze neurons and just look at the activity of those units in different layers. What they found was that, much like neuroscientists see in visual cortex, as the layers traversed and it became, you know, to a deeper, deeper layer, the nature of the signal became more and more abstract. You'd get like lines and edges and fuzzy patches and things like that. And then toward the top of the hierarchy, one might say, you have these neurons that are spitting out Ginger Campbell features. And then, of course, this is a cycle because now they can use this deep neural network to then test things on the deep neural network and ask, well, will that happen in the brain, right? So this is always a cycle. But they intentionally set up this neural network to see whether it would process like the brain processes visual information up to object recognition. My understanding is I was listening to the show of one of your your other guests 
unsupervised thinking. And they were talking about how it doesn't look like something like back propagation actually happens in the brain. So some things that go on in neural nets aren't the same, right? And that's kind of beyond the scope of today's conversation, but I think it's important to point out that you can't assume everything's both ways. I think when back propagation first came out, everyone agreed, like, that's not how the brain does it. But there has been a recent surge of interest in thinking about how if the brain doesn't do back propagation exactly, and it likely doesn't because it's just a neat, tidy mathematical process, um, and, and brains don't, like neurons don't communicate backwards like they do in artificial neural networks. But this is one way in that maybe artificial intelligence has potentially informed neuroscience, and there are other examples of this. You were talking about different levels of understanding, and you can think about the level of understanding the way that David Marr broke down things in what is the computational goal of some process is one way to sort of approach a problem. And then you can ask, like, what algorithms might be implementing that goal, that behavior, that function at a lower level? And at the lowest level, you can ask, well, what's the actual mechanism? How are those computations performed? How is that algorithm performed, right? A lot of the way that people in neuroscience are being inspired from deep learning is looking at the function of a deep learning algorithm. And this is where backpropagation comes in because this is a, a training function. This really is an efficient way to train the network. And it would be, what a beautiful thing it would be if evolution by brute force over time has implemented some approximate version of this type of training in the brain. So it wouldn't be exactly backpropagation, but there are neuroscientists who are looking at backpropagation as an inspiration to determine maybe we can actually get some sort of approximation of this. And I've had people on my show who talk about this too, and it's kind of an exploding topic right now in neuroscience. So thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> so that's our two-way inform each other very briefly discussion. But um, you talked about the um, <laughs> intermittent breakups. <laughs> so what are the obstacles to cross-pollination between the two fields? I know that could also be a whole hour or many hours, but, oh yeah, you know, a high-level view. There is a lot of cross-pollination. It does wax and wane, like you said, and, and it is, I think it's waxing now. So there are a handful of similarities between deep learning and neuroscience. And if you read anything in like, you know, if you see something on 60 Minutes, they'll say, deep learning is the brain. But there are a handful of really superficial similarities, but there are a universe of differences still between like a deep learning network and the brain. So that's one obstacle, I suppose. You know, another is like any specialized domain, just the sheer volume of knowledge to learn in both fields it's more and more difficult to be like a, a renaissance person. So that is one obstacle. But along with that comes the wealth of jargon, you know, that we all use. Even when we use terms in, in either field, we often don't even know what we're talking about when we say that term, intelligence, attention, consciousness. I just released a uh, podcast where we talked to two philosophers about emergence and mind-wandering. These are all slippery terms, right? And we're all always working out what we actually mean by them. And you can really mire yourself, you know, let alone your communication with someone in a different field, right? So, you know, every once in a while I get fed up, right? And I think, ah, I'm just going to go study physics, right? Not that that's easy either, but but at least it's more straightforward, right? And then I eventually go to sleep and, and wake up and I've fortunately forgotten about it and go back to thinking about things like consciousness, right? Just to give you and my listeners a teaser, I have a brand new book from Patricia Churchland called Conscience. Speaking of words that <laughs> people don't necessarily agree on the meaning of. <laughs> so I'm sure, I feel hopeful that I can get her back on because it's been a few years since I talked to her. You know, I had breakfast with her, and it was like we were on the East Coast, and she was, you know, traveling from the West Coast, so it was like 4.30 a.m. her time, so I'm sure she doesn't remember. But I, I really enjoyed her, and of course, you know, it was like having breakfast with a hero, because that neurophilosophy book was a real inspiration to me early on. So, What area 
of the interaction between neuroscience. I mean, this is what you're doing. Neuroscience and AI, that's your show. But is there some particular thing that just really, really lights you up? This is not one thing, but it's more like the process. I love the idea of how artificial intelligence and moving forward in that domain can help us ask novel questions about how the brain works. And there's a lot of that happening right now. And and I know that's the role of philosophy too, speaking of neurophilosophy and, and Patricia Churchland and her new book, right? <laughs> because once you define a term, you can ask better questions about it, I think. AI has the potential to help us discover new functions that are, you know, like just to give a really simple example, and I haven't read the paper yet, but I, there's this new paper from the people at DeepMind that are training these reinforcement learning, deep learning agents, and we don't need to talk about what that is, but kind of these AI agents with these pretty simple learning principles. Again, I need to read the paper, but what they're seeing is aspects of altruism coming up between these multiple agents acting together. What they're faced with is having to define operationally altruism. But at some point, you have to define it. And if you see this behavior coming out of this AI agent interaction, right? Well, it is a behavior even at an artificial level. And so you can give that a name and then you can think, oh, well, is that something that would be happening in the human brain, for instance? Mm, okay. So one of the things I was thinking that's obvious, and I think, well, maybe that's not true, but it seems obvious, is that because of the AI in its current form with deep learning really depends on the huge computing power that we now have. And neuroscience is now generating these huge data sets, especially, you know, for people doing things like fMRI research and those kinds of things. So I would think that AI, one of its natural roles would be to help neuroscience with dealing with all this data. That's a huge role. And I mean, yeah, we've been talking really about how AI and neuroscience can help inform each other, I suppose. But that's really the other role of AI, not only in neuroscience, but in all, all aspects of you know, industry and science, but how it's useful to <laughs> just to deal with the data and, <laughs> and ask questions about the data. I can't speak you know, for fMRI. I would never study anything using fMRI, that slow, sluggish signal. I just want some, <laughs> want some backlash from some of your listeners. But, you know, so. but like I told you, when I was in graduate school, I was recording you know, with a single electrode down on the brain. And you know, my advisor's creed was one neuron per day. And that is a victory. By the time I left as a postdoc, by the time I left academia, you know, we're sticking two multi-electrode probes in the brain. They're better electrodes. So you'd end up with a hundred something neurons at the end of the day. And you're not going to go to your desk after that and just start looking through them and analyzing. Yeah. So you need these sort of procedures to help analyze that thing. So whether it's fMRI or, you know, recording actual neural spikes from these multi-electrodes, this is the, the vision, right? Is that we're going to have these nanoparticles that are inserted into like neural membranes. And so we will have the potential to record from every single neuron in the brain. Well, what are we going to do with that, right? <laughs> <laughs> 80 billion recordings. Oh, 86, Ginger, 86. Okay. No, <laughs> I like rounding. Yeah, I do too. So this sort of thing, AI is going to, um, and these types of analyses are already being used to analyze these huge sets of data. And this is going to be huge for things like brain-machine interfaces in translating people's, the huge distributed neural firings into actions that, you know, someone wants the machine to take for them. And there's just no way, like statistically, with our old statistics, using correlations between neurons, it's just not going to be as fine of detail and extract as nearly as much information out as a deep neural network will be able to do automatically just by dint of its massive amounts of units and processing. So, Paul, what else would you like to share before we close? Oh, I think I've shared too much of myself already, haven't I? <laughs> well, I hope we've given listeners um, some desire to learn more and listen to your show. Do you have any advice for students that might be interested in working at this intersection between AI and neuroscience? It sounds like it would be a growing area of opportunity. 
oh, yeah, I, I think everyone should quit their academic job and start a podcast. What do you think? <laughs> well, if you can figure out how to make a living, I want you to tell me what the secret is. Oh, man, don't tell me that. I'm just getting started, and you're the legend here. So, <laughs> I mean, the podcast, obviously, is is super rewarding to me. I mean, it, it fills so many things for me, and I get to essentially teach other people through my conversations, which is it's just so rewarding to know that some people appreciate it. Yeah, I'm sure you found that the feedback you get from listeners is what keeps you going. Oh, it's been so great. You know, it, it's growing a little bit. Like the feedback is people are feeling more comfortable sending me emails and suggesting. I get a ton of suggestions. You know, you got to have this person on. You need more women. You need more women on your show. I'm trying. I'm trying to get women on. But really, I, I think if I were to do it over now, well, I would maybe take one of maybe two approaches. One way to do it is, you know, if you're already like in a program, like a lot of my listeners are graduate students already or faculty or undergraduate people studying neuroscience and related fields. One thing that you could do is just set aside some time and take one of these online courses, one of these MOOCs, like these massively open online courses. There are a lot of them that are really great where you can learn the AI side of things, if you're in neuroscience, let's say. So Andrew Ng's course on Coursera is a great one, and it's super popular. Um, there's a great one on fast AI. So that's one way to do it. And, you know, those are somewhat intensive, seven to eight week courses, I think. So you could take time on your own, right, to take one of those. Another way to do it, I think this is a great way, is to just go do one of those data science boot camps that are so popular now that promise that you're going to get a job afterward and stuff. But it's really an immersion experience. So you can go do one of those boot camps without thinking, hey, I'm going to go to get a job, but then bring that knowledge back into your neuroscience program. That really depends on your advisor and the system. And it also depends on your personality, whether you're the kind of person who can do a MOOC and actually make it all the way to the end or whether you need something a little bit more structured. I mean, a boot camp is good if you're the kind of person who's really motivated by, I'm here, I'm doing it. That's right. Someone making you do it. I wish I had had better organization and productivity skills entering into this stuff. And that's like some of the most valuable tools, skills that I've learned a little bit too late in my career really is how to get stuff done and hold yourself accountable. I mean, it's a really hard thing. I might actually develop like a little course on it specifically for neuroscientists. We'll see down the line. Yeah, that might actually be something that you could actually charge for. <laughs> well, I got to make a living somehow, you know. Where can my listeners find your work? Well, so the website is braininspired.co. Honestly, I don't know how... If you search for it in iTunes or something, I don't know if it'll come up on the first. It does, it does. Oh, good. But I would go to the website, and then there are links to all the different platforms and whatnot um, to subscribe and to listen to different episodes. Is brain-inspired all one word, or is there a dash? In the website, it's uh, all one word. I've taken the, the hyphen out of the other, <laughs> where I've put it elsewhere as well, just so it's not confusing. Well, that's why I couldn't remember, because I've seen it both ways. But with Google, it doesn't matter. If you put in brain-inspired podcast, you'll find it. So I can testify to that. So you're doing good. Paul, it's been great to have you on the show, and I really look forward to listening to the rest of your episodes. Well, I mean, Ginger, I've been listening to Brain Science since it was Brain Science Podcast, and I have distinct memories of listening to an interview with Evan Thompson while I was on a run, things like that. So it's it's really been uh, an honor for me to be on your show. And, you know, I know it's a different kind of show for you. So I hope that your listeners will get, if nothing else, a little bit of education and, and hopefully some inspiration through what we talked about. So thank you. In the early days of podcasting, say before 2010, it is very common for podcasters to invite one another on their shows. It was a key method for discovering new shows. In fact, if you look back at the early episodes of my other show, Books and Ideas, you will find several guests who are now in the Academy of Podcasting Hall of Fame. But for brain science, things were very different because in those early days, all the other shows in my niche were professional journalists. For example, Neuropod came from Nature Magazine and All in the Mind from ABC, the Australian Public Radio. 
So I felt I had to meet the standards of journals like Science and Nature and Scientific American. While that might have helped me to get a very high level of quality to my content, it sometimes made me feel cut off from my fellow independent podcasters. That's why I was so excited to get to interview Paul Middlebrooks. He's not the only other person to enter this niche, but his is the first indie show that I've really felt many of you would enjoy. So if our conversation stimulated your interest, I hope you'll go and check out the Brain Inspired Podcast. I'm still hoping to get Antonio Damasio on Brain Science. His publicist is working hard to nail down a time. But next month, I'm going to be talking with Russell Poldrack from Stanford University about his new book, The New Mind Readers, What Neuroimaging Can and Cannot Reveal About Our Thoughts. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts and comments, so please write to me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. You can also send me voice feedback at speakpipe.com forward slash docartemis or use the SpeakPipe mobile app. You can also post comments on the Brain Science Podcast Facebook fan page. And don't forget that the full episode show notes with links to Paul's work and episode transcripts are at brainsciencepodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back next month on the fourth Friday of the month. If you're listening to the ad-free version of this episode, don't forget to keep listening past the closing credits to the extra content that I mentioned earlier. Brain Science is copyright 2019 to Virginia Campbell, MD. You can copy this episode to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. The new theme music for the Brain Science Podcast is Mindfire by Tony Catraccia. You can find his work at syncopationnow.com.